This is the Gender Justice Brief, a podcast of gender justice. We fight for gender equity by breaking down legal, structural, and cultural barriers and expanding protections. We want to see all people thrive, regardless of their gender, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Well, hi, everybody. Uh, good evening. I am Erin May Quaid. I am the Advocacy Director at Gender Justice. And today we're going to be talking about 303 Creative, uh, the Supreme Court case that just had oral arguments today. I am joined by my um, always fun and favorite. There's like dishes being yeah, There's like symbols about. in the back. Like. <laughs> yeah, it's dishes. Um, Jess, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, I can introduce myself. I'm Jess Braverman. I'm the legal director at Gender Justice. Um, we litigate cases involving LGBTQ rights, reproductive rights, all kinds of other stuff. We also do advocacy. Erin, um, I'll let you introduce yourself at the end because of all the like the drum playing going on. But Jared, I, I love that you're here. So Jared, Jared and I worked at the same public defender's office in Hennepin County. It's a coincidence. That's not why he's here. He's here because he's a board member at Outfront. Um, but I know Jared. I love Jared. And I'm so glad you're here. So Jared, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm a board member out front, so I work on uh, queer liberation issues through them. Um, I'm also a law professor over at Mitchell Hamlin, and so um, I teach uh, evidence law and I teach um, legal writing. And yeah, so I'm here sort of uh, thinking about it from uh, those perspectives. Awesome. And I'm Erin May Quaid. I'm the advocacy director in a very noisy place. Um, and I am really excited to have this conversation about this really important case that was heard today at the United States Supreme Court 303 Creative um, v. Elanis. And so I think, Jess, I'm going to come to you first. Just like, what's this case about? Tell us what 303 Creative um, is about. You know, there's like... um there, what is this case about? So th there's this web developer who wants to make wedding websites. I don't think she does make wedding. She just wants to make wedding websites. And she's like, like, theoretically, I could make wedding websites. And that's not usually the basis for a lawsuit, but here it is. Um, and she's basically saying that, you know, if I make wedding websites that are like websites of other people's weddings with that actually express like my personal views on marriage, I shouldn't have to do that for gay people. So like, I'll make gay people websites, but I'm not gonna make you wedding websites because I don't believe in gay marriage and my websites are like all about me, not about the couple getting married. Um, and so she's she like proactively sued because Colorado prohibits you from discriminating against LGBTQ people. So in Colorado, you can't be a public accommodation, meaning you can't be a company that's open to the public and then bar LGBTQ people from your services. And so she's saying, I want to do that. Um, so I'm suing. And for some reason, the courts were like, okay, but normally they'd be like, go away. Nothing's happened. Um, right. Like you don't make these websites, the, the state no, of Colorado No gay person has asked you to make this website. Yeah, Colorado has not gotten upset with you, um, but here we are. Yeah. So um, who was making the arguments? So we had... Um, there was an attorney from the Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, who represents 303 Creative. You may know them from like every anti-LGBTQ thing that happens um, in any court anywhere, pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, they, on, on the side of uh, let's not discriminate, this seems wrong, was uh, the Colorado Solicitor General and also 
Um, the U.S. stepped in on the case. So the mm. Solicitor General's office, not Prelegar, you know, we're all big like we Prelegar. We love a <laughs> yeah, Prelegar Prologar, argument. Yeah. We do yep. at Gender Justice. But she was not the one making the argument, but um, a different attorney from her office on behalf of the U.S. who was like, there's the United, the government of the United States has an interest in how the court interprets this case. So I'm going to like, we're, we're going to jump into. And I'm glad they did because they did a, what I thought was like a much better job. I like their theory better than than Colorado's but and so I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of roll a bunch of things into one um here so and I'm gonna get to the masterpiece cake shop thing in a little bit but like let's just talk a little bit about you know why this case so we have a a a wedding or website developer who would like to make wedding websites doesn't do them yet but doesn't want to make them for gay couples um and so like how you know, you talk about how unusual that is. How is their standing here? And talk about what the facts of this case are. Like, how did the fact development happen without being able to say, like, here's the thing I do. Here is what the, the state of Colorado did to me because I was discriminating against LGBT. Like, how did they develop these facts? Tell me about that. Yeah. So um, that's the thing, right? Like, this case, and we're going to talk about the hypotheticals, the case involved like nonstop hypotheticals. And that was in part like a function of what happens when there's no facts in front of you. So like everything's hypothetical, like this whole case is hypothetical. So so the whole case was about hypotheticals. Um, and so basically the, they did like stipulated facts where everyone agreed on certain facts, like that the wedding, that the person wants to make wedding websites, that she will not make wedding websites for gay people, um, so, you know, that she makes other websites for gay people as long as it's not about like something she disagrees with, you know, so there were stipulated facts they all agreed to, but they couldn't like, you know, if she's claiming, hey, these websites are my expressive speech, right? Like I make these websites, they represent my views and my views are like everywhere on these websites. There were no websites they could look to, to, to for examples, right? Like there's nothing they could be like, well, is that even true? Or what does that mean? There, there was just nothing. And that's really unusual for a court case. By the time a case gets to the Supreme Court, there should be like developed facts. We should all agree on what's going on. Um, and we're seeing that like less and less, like the court keeps taking up cases and like everyone's kind of fabricating facts. It's very frustrating. And this is one example where there's, there's just nothing to look at. Like she says she's going to do this and you, and you're like, okay, but like, what does it look like to make a wedding website that's about you and not about the couple? I don't know. I haven't seen one. Which were some of the questions that were asked. Uh, you touched on this a little bit, but I think you should explain it. So usually when we get to, um, I would like to discriminate against LGBTQ people. It's usually the end of the sentences because of my religion, but that's actually not, there's not a religious claim here. It's a speech claim. Why is that in this case? Why is there a speech claim? Yeah. So, um, the Supreme Court ruled like a while ago that if you're bringing a, a religious burden, like if you're saying like X, Y, Z law burdens my religious practice, the courts look at whether is this like a generally applicable law or is it a law that targets religion? And if it's a generally applicable law, it's probably going to withstand judicial scrutiny. But you don't get that deference for a speech claim. So if you're like this law burdens my speech the courts give it like a higher level of review, like they take a harder look. So one way a lot of religious plaintiffs have been getting around this kind of um, weak, you know, I have a weak religious liberties claim is to instead bring it as a speech claim. And that's what they did here. So this wasn't actually, the court didn't agree to hear this as a religious claim. They um, agreed to hear it as ex expressly as a speech claim. Now the, the issue there is like, okay, so like that means the implication of this case is like, this is just about your speech, right? Like you don't, 
I just believe something, right? Like, I don't know why I just believe it. And like, there you go. You can't make me say anything to the contrary. Like, it's even like broader. It's just like, can you be forced to say something that you like don't agree with? But it's, you know, it, but then it's also a question of like, what does it mean to be forced to say something? Like if I'm, if you come over and I make you an omelet, am I like expressing something to you or were you hungry and you asked me for food? Like, I, you know, what, what does it mean to be like expressive speech to be forced to say something? You know, so the right. court's kind of grappling with all these questions. Well, and I think it's important to note too, that like, there's a difference between forcing someone to say something and choosing to open a business um, to the public, right? And so I think that got conflated over and over again today, where they make it sound like the government forced this woman to open a web develop, you know, web design business and then make her make wedding websites for LGBTQ people instead of the, you know, she's like, her speech has not been stifled. She is very clear on what she believes that she's in newspaper articles. She's on news stations. She's got a blog post about it. Like her speech has not been stifled. The question before this court is are wedding websites that she makes somehow her own speech. And, and that, I think that's, uh, it's like expressionism has gotten conflated with what, what speech is, but, um, how is this different from Masterpiece Cake, which also came out of Colorado, which was also attempting to, you know, chip away at rights for LGBTQ people and and just create an exemption to Colorado human rights law to allow discrimination against LGBTQ people. How is this different? Yeah, so Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, people keep saying, didn't the court already rule on this? And Masterpiece Cake, in Masterpiece Cake Shop, they actually didn't, they punted. So they, it was a Colorado case addressing the same Colorado law that basically says you can't discriminate against LGBTQ people. And Masterpiece Cake Shop didn't want to sell cakes for gay weddings because like, like the omelet is an expression of like how I feel about, you know, Aaron, you and your gay relationship, the cakes are the same. Um, and so, but Masterpiece Cake Shop, the court was, they kind of scoured the record and were like, oh, this one guy at this one meeting said something we think is kind of like rude. So we're, we're just going to say like, he can't have this kind of like rude feelings about one side or the other. So we're just going to say like, whatever, like they just kind of didn't answer the question. Like they, they skirted around it by saying like so a decision maker was biased against one of the parties and therefore like they couldn't make a fair decision in that case. They didn't rule on the question of whether the cake person, you know, the cake maker has to actually make the cake under yeah. Colorado law. So now like, now they might actually get to that question, maybe. Yeah. And so, you know, I was going to say, I, Jared, I was just going to come to you. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. that's literally where I was going. I, say that I think one of the most interesting aspects of looking back at Masterpiece Cake Shop is that Thomas's dissent in that case is all about how it should have been a free speech case, right? And how mm. the court should have taken it up as a free speech case. And so it seems really clear that ADF and their lawyers looked at his dissent, looked at the trends, and after they were able to win their uh, 2019 case in Arizona, knew that they needed to bring this as, in a free speech vehicle in order to, like, work on what Thomas was pushing for there. I was gonna say he wrote the roadmap for them. He was like, do it another way. But yeah, go ahead, Jess. Oh yeah, I was gonna say, do you want to tell everyone what the what the Arizona case was? Yeah. So the Arizona case was 
a challenge under their anti-discrimination act arguing that two women that were making wedding invites um, were claiming that they were being um, stopped from speaking because they couldn't um, ban LGBT people from buying their wedding invitations. And the Arizona Supreme Court there said that their free speech rights, in fact, trumped the Arizona Anti-Discrimination Act. And it's a large reason why this case even got before the Supreme Court, because it is the circuit break that allows for the Supreme Court to take this into consideration. And it was all of the sort of parade of horrible legislators that were arguing to the Supreme Court that they should grant cert and argue this case. We're looking at that case to say, well, hey, we've got this conflict. You know, Arizona disagrees. The Eighth Circuit is disagreeing with the Tenth Circuit. Take this case up, you know, so it gave Ted Cruz and all of those other folks their argument. And spe- speaking yeah. of the Eighth Circuit, we had we we had our own case here in Minnesota, Telescope Media. Aaron, do you want to say what that was? Because you know, you know that case well. Yeah, and this dovetails really well into what I was just going to say. So the Alliance Defending Freedom purposefully brought cases in a number of different states to create this circuit split, right? So the Supreme Court will often take cases when they're like, gee, the Eighth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit came out with different answers, so we're going to settle this, right? And so the ADF brought cases in Kentucky and Tennessee and Minnesota, New York, Virginia, Arizona, Colorado, to get these different circuit decisions so that they could get to the Supreme Court. The case here in Minnesota, you know, was really similar to 303 Creative. It was a couple who, um, they, they are filmmakers and they would have they wanted to delve into the world of creating wedding videos but they weren't just like I'm going to come I'm going to film your wedding and then I'm going to give you a video they were going to like add commentary about like the beauty of heterosexual merit you know so it was like um Jesse always said it was like <laughs> propaganda videos or whatever yeah it's and like so, do you want do you want a wedding video or do you want like a whole video about your video your videographer's religious beliefs like because if you want that product <laughs> you can go to telescope media want- of a wedding video where, where your videographer gives commentary about their own religious beliefs over your wedding. That's like every person's dream, right? Um, and so we we had our own case here in Minnesota and it um went it was, you know, went up to the appeals court, right? And they yeah, were the like circuit. the eighth circuit, thank you. And and they were like, okay, yeah, like we think that you're gonna win. So like go back and develop the facts, right? Like the fake facts that got all the way to Supreme Court and then they withdrew the case. Um and so it's it is a concerted strategy that ADF has been doing to chip away at these rights. And so I'm going to go to um, so today because there were no like real established facts, there were tons of hypotheticals, so many hypotheticals. I mean, the questions were like, OK, so let's say I'm, you know, somebody with a disability comes in and they want a wedding website and your client disagrees with that, like, is that okay? And, you know, there was race and interracial marriage and we got divorced. And so there were all these hypotheticals. And um, Jess, will you talk about why there were so many hypotheticals? And then Jared, I want you to talk about the kind of the broader implications um, that were really shown through these hypothetical questions. So um, the most, can I just start with like the most hilarious hypothetical, which was like Amy Connie Barrett was trying to give the ADF a softball and was like, Okay, she was ba- what she was basically trying to get ADF to say was like this person wouldn't make any website that that didn't accord with her religious beliefs. So like if I had like an affair and my wedding website was like I was married, 
But then I cheated on my wife with Jared Mollenkopf. We were at a conference and we had a great time and now we're together. Amy Connie Barrett was like, would she make this because it opposes her religious beliefs? And ADF lawyer was like, of course she'd make this. Yes, she would. Marriage. So she flubbed that like softball question. So Amy Connie Barrett kept going, kept going until the ADF person was like, oh, no, no. What I meant to say is no, she would not. She, Amy Connie Barrett was like, I think you said that she would, but did you mean, I mean, she like, yeah, she was like, you said she would, but I think what you meant to say was she would not. And the person was like, yes, that's what um, I meant. That, that was, but um, the, the reason what they were trying to basically get everyone to get the ADF lawyer to admit was like, it's not same sex. Mi- Sorry, I have to put, cause this led to one of the more like horrific part. There were, there were a couple of like horrific parts of this argument. One, but what it led to was like, basically like they wanted, they wanted the ADF lawyer to admit like, if your religious beliefs, like if you're opposed to interracial marriage, then you're asking us to rule that you can refuse services to like interracial couples, right? Like just, it's basically like, just say it, right? Like just say it. And the ADF lawyer didn't want to say it. So the hypotheticals kept getting more and more. And Ketanji Brown Jackson brought up this like hypothetical, like, let's say you have a store at the mall that wants to show this like um, view of Christmas where it's like nostalgia, Christmas nostalgia is their theme. That's their expressive speech. And because it's set in like the forties and fifties, you know, there's, there's this scene, it's sepia toned, like, they, like the artist really puts in their heart to this work. Um, but because it's their view of like Christmas nostalgia, the only kids they'll do this for are white kids. Um, is that allowed? And like, yes, under ADF, like under what this wedding uh, website person is asking the court to do, like, yeah, that there's no way to distinguish it. Um, and so I think what they were trying to get at was like, hey, this is not just about like religion versus gay marriage, which we know is a false dichotomy, right? Because a lot of religious people are gay and a lot of gay, a lot of religious people have no problem with, gay. you know, it's just this constant thing at the court as though these two groups are like opposed when they're not even two groups, right? It's the overlapping people are like religious and gay. Um, but what they were trying to basically get at is like, there's no stopping this. This is a runaway train. Where's the line? Like, where's mm-hmm. the line? Um, the, the, one of the more like disturbing hypotheticals, and I think Jared, you nodded, I'm sure this was on your mind when, when like Alito was like, well, what if you have a black child dressed up as a KKK member? And it's like basically comparing like black kids to KKK. It was really no, it was, weird. If there was a black Santa and yeah. there was a kid in a KKK. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, yeah. Jared. Well, yeah. And so Alito, like, I mean, when we talk about sort of the implications of this, Alito is like the scariest actor today in my mind for like the questions he was posing and the arguments that he was pushing forward, right? And so I think that when you think about it, so ADF, we talk about this case coming up without like traditional ideas of standing applying um, and ADF having pushed for these cases to come forward when they are in this um, pre-enforcement stage so that there aren't um, sympathetic plaintiffs on the other side, right? So it's just Lori Smith, who's a sweet middle-aged white lady who wants to make websites versus the um, communications clause of the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, right? Like it is like this very much, you know, amorphous idea versus a sweet lady who's making videos about how much she loves Jesus, right? And so, you know, Alliance Defending Freedom, when they did that and made that choice, um, they were setting up an argument that would undermine everything that Justice Kennedy was trying to do around the sort of um, 
you know, humiliation versus dignity of queer people arguments, right? And so Alito today brought forward some really troubling arguments, right? So not only did he try to conflate saying a black Santa who doesn't want to put a kid in a KKK costume on his lap for a picture is the same as a white Santa who doesn't want to take pictures with black kids, right? That's like a horrifying argument in of itself. But he also like essentially tried to use Jewish people and rabbis as a pawn for this really disturbing argument for how we could get into attack against interracial marriage, right? So he uses this hypothetical that was brought by an extremely conservative Jewish group in their amicus briefs to say, hey, if a um, rabbi has a Jewish couple that comes to him for a ceremony, like, and then there's this whole hypothetical, and then he says, okay, so he's got a Jewish person who's going to marry a Christian in this interfaith relationship, um, and he believes that that is a existential threat to his faith. Does he have to perform this ceremony, right? And so he is um, sort of, you know, dog whistling that we're like getting to a place where we're going to have a real discussion about whether or not um, interfaith and potentially um, interracial relationships can be challenged under this argument that it's an attack on your faith to participate in them. And doing so in the context of undermining attempts by um, Sotomayor to get an actual limiting principle from ADF, right? Like ADF, the Wagner, the attorney kept being asked What's your limiting principle? Kagan asked her, uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson asked her, then Sotomayor was like really pushing to say, give us your limiting principle. At what point can a public accommodation stop providing based on religious ideas? And, you know, she wasn't answering it and she was avoiding the question. And then Alito throws out these hypotheticals to sidetrack, to essentially say, I don't want to hear what her limiting principle is here because I don't actually believe in one, right? Like, I just want us to be able to shape whatever claim we want to make here without one. And the comparison of like a rabbi and a priest and like a wedding website creator is like another weird, like, like those are like analogous, like analogous, right. like positions in society. I also, I think the other disturbing thing from Alito was he, and he does this all the time, like going back to the, you were referencing, right. And Kennedy, like the Kennedy decision in Obergefell. So in Obergefell, Kennedy starts for some reason by saying Which like- Which is the really, marriage equality yes, case. Yep. Yeah, thank you, Erin. Um, starts by saying for some reason, like really great people can be super homophobic and, and oppose gay marriage. Like I, it was this weird thing in there that he just kind of threw people a bone and was like, it doesn't mean you're a, a bad person. You know, decent people are opposed to gay marriage, right? Is, is kind of what he was saying. And Alito is like, he he wasn't going with the hypotheticals about like the racist photographer because he's like, no, there's a difference between racism and homophobia. As Kennedy said in Obergefell, really decent people are homophobic, but you can't be a decent person and be racist. Um, it, it's literally what he said. Like it was what he was saying, um, which was just kind of like. <laughs> well, and, then, and, I, and he like built off of that to also say like, he uses the dignity language to talk about how it strips the dignity of the website maker if she's forced to communicate something she doesn't believe in. Like trying to compare the like 
queer people not having access to public accommodations to being forced to provide access as equal harms and like equally undermining your dignity as a member of society like just and i sorry. really really want no i want to hone in on that because i think that this is really 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 important the the state of Colorado is not telling this woman how she has to design her websites, what colors it has to be, like what font she has to use. They're just saying that you you have opened a business, which is a public service, and you have to serve people without discriminating against them because you opened a business to the public. They didn't tell her to open that business. And so the question ultimately is like when you're in the marketplace and you choose to open a business and offer a service, can you discriminate? And I think it's really important to note too that like it's not just that Lori Smith wants to like not make wedding websites for gay couples, like where they come in and she's like, oh, you know, I'm so sorry. I actually don't do gay weddings, but here's an, another place. It's that she wants to put on her website where she offers her service. She wants to post a thing where it's like, I do not serve LGBTQ people. And I think it's really, really important to like talk about this public statement because this is where it gets into a different part, Jared, that you were talking about too, where it's like the harm caused LGBTQ people. It's not just that like some, if the if the Supreme Court is like, no, it's fine for 303 Creative to do this, that like somewhere in you know Colorado, someone might have to find a different wedding website designer is that it sets up the same things that we saw during racial segregation and through like really, you know, I, I say overt times of anti-Semitism in our history, but we are there um, when they would say, you know, they would have signs that say we don't serve Jewish people. It said worse things than that. Um, but so like the the public humiliation and the institutionalized humiliation that goes along with putting those public signs up over and over again, like I don't serve um, you know, LGBTQ people, I actually pulled from one of the Alliance Defending Freedoms cases out of Tennessee, I pulled out the, there's somebody who does have this public thing. So it says, I cannot positively depict anything that demeans others, sexually objectifies others, or devalues marriage between a man and a woman. Um, so I don't photograph same-sex weddings or ceremonies. So this person has been like, it's demeaning and it's sexually objective and devalues marriage. I don't serve you, right? And that is the whole point of all of this is to engage in this public humiliation, this constant public humiliation of LGBTQ people just living their lives. And the last thing I'll say is that Hubert Humphrey, um, you know, Senator from Minnesota, Vice President, he talked about when passing the Civil Rights Act, it's difficult for us to comprehend the monstrous humiliations and inconveniences that racial discrimination imposes on our Black fellow citizens. He didn't use Black. Um, and in Brown v. Board of Education, they talked about segregation and how it had a detrimental effect on uh, Black children. The impact is greater um, when it has a sanction of law for the policy of separating is usually interpreted as denoting the inferiority of that group, right? And so like, it, I really, really want to hit home that like for, for a lot of people, they might hear like, well, she doesn't want to make gay wedding websites. Like what's the, the problem? It's not that she doesn't want to do it. She wants to post about it publicly. And the goal is to create all of these places and all of these businesses throughout the country where they can say like, we don't serve those people, right? And you, you're, you're a queer couple, you're walking down the road and you see a sign like, we don't serve you in here. You can't come in here and you can't get a cake here and you can't do this. And it just like, like, you know, that constant like vigilance of living, like, am I safe here? Can I get services here? Can I do this thing as a LGBTQ person like that? It's meant to relegate us to second class citizenship. And so I, I just really want to make that point because this, all these hypotheticals that they threw out, the ones that were most salient were the ones that were related to race and were related to disability and all of those protected classes, because they keep trying to carve off LGBTQ and it's not, it, it, you can't separate it out. If you're going to allow it here, 
it's going to come in all the other forms. And I think the most direct way that she was asked today. So like, what about interracial marriage? She was like, why? And then she just moved past it. I mean, like, because there is no answer other than yes, that's of course what they are, you know, going to allow. They just know they can't say that. Well, that, except everyone except Alito, who's just like, no, they're like, <laughs> like, it's okay to be, it's great to be homophobic. We're all homophobic. Like, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. There's no racist anymore. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Her specific response to that was, hey, what about an inter, you know, interracial marriage or like what about refusing to perform ceremonies for black folks? And her limiting principle on that was, well, if you have to make services equally available to folks and you can't deny services based on identity, just on the message that it provides. And so somebody involved in weddings, whatever wedding service you're providing, if you're refusing to provide it to Black folks, then you're probably not willing to provide any other service to them based on their race. And so we'll never have that situation because you would be in violation because you're denying them all categories of service, not just a specific expressive category, right? And it's like, how absurd, like clearly, clearly somebody that has a problem with interracial relationships might provide a black person services in another context and not in the context of an interracial wedding and we have this exact problem so like what is her argument we need to like rely on some good-natured aspects of racists to like protect the things that the services we care about like it was well, and and then what? But it's like all the what about all the things that follow from you know gay marriage too? Like what about my daughter? Do people deny her things because they don't believe that her moms? Are, you know, it's just it's all of these things that we're opening up. And I think it's really important to note too that this isn't even a religious claim; it's a speech claim. And so it's really about whatever the person believes, regardless of what it's based off of. And so in theory, it could be like I just don't like that you're left-handed. And uh, I won't be doing anything for you because you're left-handed and, but it's really because you're black, you know, like it's, if we make it whatever you want it to you be. You know, it, it sounds, it sounds silly, but that was a thing, right? Like left-handed kids were like beaten at school to like learn to be right-handed, you know, like these things sound silly now, but it's because we've had policies that like stop things that now at this point seem silly. Like, you know, it's not like, we like to think that like, you know, desegregating schools was this thing where everyone was like, yay, but like, absolutely not. And to this day, there's still lawsuits about it. Um, you know, it's like, we're taught this kind of like fantasy version of history where it's like, and then there was this law that everyone was on board with and, and it, pat, you know, like this, the, the court, the court came down with Brown of Ed and every, like Brown v. Board of Ed and everyone like celebrated. And it's like, no, ah, people were they had to, <laughs> like, they, they had to they call in the military to desegregate right. and, schools. And so it's like a lot of stuff that we might be like, haha, now we're like, the reason they're haha now is because like there was a policy where it's like you're not allowed to mistreat these people and then right. public opinion kind of followed the policy that is the one thing i learned from my uh you know very expensive degree uh public opinion follows public policy it's, it's really not the other way around um there's two jared did you have say something to say well and i also want to say is that like we know that the adf is already raising money based on their claims of what this precedent will do, right? So like they're already raising money claiming we're moving into education next, right? With the argument that it is a free speech violation to force a teacher to teach things that they don't believe in, right? That yep. it is a free speech violation to stop children from bullying other kids based on LGBT identity because 
as long as it's not physical harassment and it's just yep. verbal harassment, that students should be protected in that, right? Like they have plans to, like they believe they're going to win this case. I expect they, they are will. writing memos um, based on winning this oh, case. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and then look, and just to quickly say too, it's really concerning uh, with the Hobby Lobby decision being leaked from Alito. Um, and that, you mean that person, or No, didn't you see the New York Times article? No. Uh, somebody came forward and said in 2014, I got to oh, be the ho- yes, the Hobby yes. Lobby. Yes, yeah. Oh, totally. Decision. Oh my right? God. And so there's a part of me that's thinking like, that they're writing these memos because they have more than just a suspicion, right? That like there's there's other things afoot. Um, and Marianne Bandavasi uh, just put in the chat, um, does this go back to Hobby Lobby where people objected to being required to perform medical procedures against a religious um, orthodoxy? I mean, I think it should be really clear. Hobby Lobby is an organization that wanted to refuse to provide birth control to their employees because part of the Affordable Care Act is like, if you have you know insurance and it has to cover birth control. So it wasn't even performing medical procedures. It's can you force your employees to live by your religious beliefs and only have the health care that you believe in? Um it it wasn't a speech case, but like it was kind of a similar idea of like the person in the position of power, like the the business that could like the the, the decision maker over whether people are kind of like treated like everyone else gets to say like nah, you know, like it was yeah. kind of this in that sense, like yeah. I'm going to go towards the end here, like what you expect the final ruling to look like. I will be honest, when we listened to the Dobbs case, I knew listening to it that they were going to overturn Roe v. Wade. I, I, and I didn't get a chance to listen to the entirety of the argument today, so maybe I didn't get the clearest picture. I, what I came away with is I still think that the 6-3 court, that the six justices know what they want to do and they're going to figure out how to do it. I just feel like there's a less clear path to do it because they have to understand that if they allow, like the, the consequences of this are massive. So that like, I just don't see how it's going to happen, but I would love the two of you to just talk about what do you think the, the ruling is going to be? What, what's your sense? I mean, Gorsuch and Alito were so clearly ready to side with the ADF on this one, right? Like there was seemed no ambiguity for either of them. Like Kavanaugh seemed like he wanted a to come to a decision that relied on a slightly narrower understanding of what a public accommodation is, but mm. didn't seem like he wanted to go the full the whole way. And I think that that's where it like I think Roberts is fine with that resolution where they have a more narrow definition of what a public accommodation is, but that and that they um, find Brady F that there is like a strict scrutiny requirement here. The weirdest thing that's going on, I think, is like SCOTUS is deciding about like what state's public accommodations provisions mean instead of like the the state's courts like that happened to in the Philadelphia in the foster care case where they decided that like foster care is not a public accommodation under like Pennsylvania's anti-discrimination law. It's like, why is this going to like, why not ask the court in the state? Like, you don't have a real controversy here. You have like this made up business thing that no one's actually doing. And then you don't actually have opinions from Colorado about like the scope of their public accommodations provision. But I will say like, that's one thing I really didn't like about the Colorado Solicitor General's argument. He was basically saying like, if you're if you're open to the public, you're a public accommodation. But if you pick and choose who you serve, then maybe you're just not a public accommodation, right? Um, 
but what you're basically saying then is like, if you discriminate, then it that's totally legal because then you're just not a public accommodation. It's this like, he was kind of giving everyone like this weird out to be like, if you discriminate, the law doesn't apply to you because then you're not open to the public. It, it was very strange. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I don't exactly know how SCOTUS, I don't know what line SCOTUS is going to set because like, like Jared was saying, and like Aaron, you were saying like, no one was able to say what the line should be. Like even ADF who was arguing to make some like ruling here with a line, like could not say what the line was. Um, I, I am like super concerned because this could end up being a very yeah broad ruling. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm very concerned as well. And I think the, um, you know, that's why we're doing the SCOTUS chat is because we want people to know what's happening and what we're seeing and, and kind of what's going to be coming. Um, they so, all kind of agreed. like Th- Thomas said, you know, even Thomas, which if Thomas is saying it, like no one's going to go further than him was like, you know, we're not talking about like, if you fly an airplane, if you like take people on a train, if you, you know, if you have something that would be really hard, you'd be really hard pressed to argue this like implicates artistic expression. You're not going to be covered by whatever this ruling is. I'm not a hundred percent sure because what if I like have a train that includes a tour of like a foliage tour about how great, like God, you know, like, like, I don't know. I could imagine like a religious train like it, I, I don't I don't know really how he's drawing that line either but he's kind of saying like there are certain public accommodations that this won't whatever we rule won't apply to because it has to implicate some form of artistic expression but the judges were pretty broad on that right like jewelry makers um caterers people who sell like bring the chairs to the weddings like yeah I, right I like the the tablecloths owned by I mean that's at a certain point you could the way that ADF is crafting their cases you could really make and I'm sorry, they're doing all this stuff around me. Um, you can make any argument that this is an artistic expression, especially because the facts of this case, it was like, you know, Sotomayor, I think, read out, like, I'm looking at page 50, and it's like, come to so-and-so's wedding, and then here are the, you know, things to do nearby, and here's the food. Like, none of that was actually an artistic expression. It was just information about the couple, right? And so, like, if they're going to say that's artistic expression, like, what what else could be? There's a question about determining for genuinely actual religious beliefs um because they're making it a speech issue i mean i think that the reality is is the the court has always said like they're never going to test for what's sincerely held religious beliefs it's just whatever someone says that that's that's what they take am i right you you can like question the sincerity but you can't question the belief i think is like what the court says but like no one questions that typically no one questions the sincerity um Mm -hmm. I think like the reason it's the the reason they brought it as a speech claim was to get that better standard of review, because if you bring it as a religion claim, the court says, well, this is a generally applicable law, though. I'm not even convinced this court would do that, but they, they didn't, they were asked, the court was asked to hear the question of like, can a generally applicable law, like, do we want to get rid of that rule and just say like, even generally applicable laws, like we're just going to strike them down if they burden someone's religious beliefs and the court wouldn't hear that. I don't know why, but like, because now they're hearing something that's, that's maybe even broader where it's like, if it's just your belief for whatever reason, like you don't, you can't be forced to say anything. You can't be forced not to say anything, but like, what isn't a, what isn't speech under these like definitions, right? Like what business can I have that I'm not engaging in any sort of like expression? Like if if I make like cogs at a cog factor, like, I don't know, you know, like Mm -hmm. what's left (laughs) that's not, that's not considered speech. I write an advocacy plan that that is very much, I wrote it, I produced it. It is very much an expression of my beliefs. Um, anyway, 
Um, so I think we're gonna, I'm gonna end on this little note. Someone said in the chat that ADF um, makes their blood boil agreed and that Amy Coney Barrett was paid by ADF to give speeches. It seems like recusing herself would be an ethical stance. There are like very few ethics that surround the Supreme Court and they police themselves. And this is just a call for Congress to pass ethics reform to the Supreme Court that exists for every other layer of the judicial branch. And it's just like the Supreme Court doesn't have it. And so that would be like my like biggest thing is, you know, we. I, just ethics for the Supreme Court that they have to follow. Um, and I'll, Jared, any last words, anything you want to just touch on? I mean, yeah, when it talks about how like sketchy ADF is, right? Like senior counsel at ADF that were on faculty with Amy Coney Barrett at the same time, right? Two of her former students that uh, work there. Like it is like so troubling, like have the overlap between the ideologies between Alito, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, and the ADF, right? Like they're just all friends that are in the same circle, right? And I think that like, I am troubled by how far reaching this opinion may be. I am also like deeply troubled by the people that came on board to support ADF in this work, right? Like we've got 33 Republican legislators that signed on to amicus briefs, right? We've got 20 state solicitor generals that signed on to amicus briefs, right? And their arguments go so much further than even what ADF was willing to articulate today, right? Like they want the Supreme Court to do wildly extreme things. And they want a ruling that says that there is no governmental interest high enough to overcome free speech rights, right? Like, I mean, the Republican senators said explicitly that outside of the um, national security context, that there is nothing, no state interest that overcomes free speech rights. So, yeah. Um, yes, any final? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And and it's, uh, it is really concerning. Um, and I think this is one of the parts where, you know, when we, when we have elections where we feel like people turned out to vote, they showed up and they elected people to like make laws and policies that they want reflected. And then knowing the court is like, nah, never mind, I don't like it. And I think it's just that third part that's really concerning. Just any final thoughts? No, you know, I, I'm not going to top what, what you and Jared are saying. So I will, I will shockingly leave it there, but I'm not looking forward to reading this opinion. I'll just say that. No, and we'll expect it to come down in the summer. I wouldn't be surprised if it's one of the last ones that they do, but if it's going to be so sweeping um, and gender justice will be here with you to talk you through the opinion, to talk you through the implications and we'll keep, you know, keep you updated on the rest of the SCOTUS and, terms. So, and we'll make yeah. Jared come with us whenever he's yeah. available. <laughs> it's been really fun to have Let's you do here. it. Yeah. Thank you for your work. Nice being here. All right. Enjoy your evening, everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the Gender Justice Brief. This show is produced by Gunter Janel and Audra Griegas. To keep up with our work in real time, be sure to check out the show notes for where to find us on the web, social media, and to sign up for text updates. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share to help us spread our message. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.